like let's say you took a treaty position on this single member LLC and we and there and really we can't find a way for it to apply, then they would say, well, that treaty doesn't apply. You can basically end up with double taxation where you owe tax in the US and you owe it in Australia and you don't get any foreign tax credit. It's, it's kind of a mismatch of entities. It's a mis I call it a mismatch of entities where they don't line up properly. The only thing that causes this to happen is this single member LLC potentially. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to US update number 14 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When you have clients selling from Australia into the US using a distribution center, some of these three PLs, not all, but some, mainly Amazon, will require you to have US liability insurance. But US insurers tend not to cover foreign entities. So if you trade through your Australian Propriety Limited in the US and use Amazon for the fulfillment of your orders, it can be hard to find an insurer who will cover your Australian Propriety Limited. So you need a US entity to get insurance and a common solution is to set up a single member LLC. And how the taxation of this single member LLC works in the US, that is the topic of today's US update. Here's Ross Treby, a US tax advisor in California. Today we're going to be discussing a tax situation where we've got an Australian company and they're basically selling in the US through like, we'll say like an Amazon fulfillment center and they're selling over e-commerce, which is pretty common today. So they're really not gonna have any offices or facilities in the US. They're gonna use you know, Amazon fulfillment center to take care of the orders and that type of thing. So what we're really looking at here today is, you know, the tax consequences between the company and the U.S. We're dealing with two countries tax laws here, Australia and the U.S. So we want to see how that interplay happens. Now for this setup, we have an Australian PTY limited, which I'm just going to call limited for this talk. Okay, and so in order to facilitate the business, which we see is pretty common, a lot of times uh, what they'll, a company like this will do is they'll go ahead and they'll determine that they really need some kind of a U.S. entity just to facilitate the payment and that type of thing. So we have this single member LLC set up in the U.S., okay, and it's handling the transactions. And so what we want to know is how is this setup going to be affected for first off for taxes in the US. And so if we look through this, the first thing that we look at is we say, okay, what type of inventory are you gonna be selling in the US? And I'm talking about tax law here and how that affects it. So there's two different types of inventory that tax law looks at here. And the first is what we call manufactured products. 
Okay. And that's where a company manufactures its own products. Okay. Or another term we use, as we know in today's world, a lot of companies don't manufacture their own products. They have, if they have their own unique product, they contract that service out. Okay. And so we would call that economic manufacturing. Okay. That's a term for that, that we can use. We have to differentiate between how the tax law in the U.S. sees these products, okay? I'll give you an example, like the Apple iPhone, okay? That would be considered manufactured by Apple, even though they contract that out to a big group in China. Now, the reason behind that is it, in order to, for it to be manu considered economically manufactured by the company, they actually have to control the manufacturing process, okay? So they can't, so an example with Apple, we would know, okay, they, they're gonna control the manufacturing process. Sure, they got somebody else that's doing it, but they're really controlling it. What I mean by controlling it is they set up the, they set up the requirements, you know, the, the requirements for the phones, how many are gonna be made, all the different technical things that would go into it. And there's some treasury regulations here that facilitate what is considered self-created product. Now, if we looked at a product that maybe a company had made that we really wouldn't consider to be self-created product, maybe the company has, for example, selling a line of lawn equipment, okay? Or outside patio furniture. Okay, so all it does is it wants an order, it just puts the order in to the, the manufacturer, and maybe they just put their stamp, the company's name on it, but they also manufacture for other groups too. That wouldn't meet the requirement of economic manufacturing. So what I'm trying to do there is just differentiate between what is the economic manufacturing and what isn't economic manufacturing. And now what I would do is say, why does this have significance? So the next step we would do in this analysis, we would say, okay, we do have economically manufactured product. Like for example, a line of herbal health products that the company very specifically has manufactured under their requirements. They're the only seller of the products. They have some type of intellectual property patent or trademark on these products, okay? So we can stamp that as economically manufactured. Now, so what that is considered for tax law purposes is that's considered foreign source product, okay? Because it's manufactured by them as far as IRS is concerned. And why that has significance is since it is considered foreign source product, it's not taxed in the US. So this makes a huge difference right off the bat because if the company has its own self-created product, now it's not taxed in the U.S. on that foreign source product. Is it foreign source because the production was overseas or is it foreign source because the manufacturer is foreign? So it is foreign source first because it's manufactured overseas, okay? It's not manufactured in the U.S. And the second point to that would be is that it is self-created product, so it so it can take that foreign source. Okay, so in order to be foreign source, it just needs to be self-created, and secondly, it has to be manufactured outside the U.S. And it needs to be self-created by a foreign entity. 
Yes, self-created by it. Because if it was U.S. entity, it wouldn't make any difference. Or if it was manufactured, if it was self-created product and manufactured in the U.S., it wouldn't make any difference. So it takes on this foreign source uh, attribute for tax purposes. And under our Internal Revenue Code over here and our Treasury regulations are the two primary uh, tax law items we would use for most of these decisions that will take care of about 90% of the tax issues here that we're dealing with today is that the IRS says that if you do not have any office in the U.S., okay, if uh, if, you, if limited, Australian limited, you have no office in the U.S., okay, and you have no employees over here, okay, and you only have foreign source income, you do, you do not have any taxing in the U.S., just quickly coming back to this question of foreign sourced or not foreign sourced. So it's only foreign sourced if it's manufactured overseas and if it is self-created by a foreign entity. If it's self-created by a U.S. entity or it is manufactured in the U.S. but by a foreign entity, then it would not count as foreign sourced. Wouldn't it be always foreign sourced as long as it's a self-created product by a foreign entity, no matter where it is manufactured? No, if it's manufactured in the U.S. by a foreign entity, okay, now the the foreign entity, its source is where it's manufactured. So its source now is in the U.S. So we're not looking at the entity here. We're looking at where it is actually made or manufactured. But it only is relevant if it's then also sold in the Yes, it's only relevant in the situation that we're talking about where we're dealing with a foreign entity, okay, here, like Limited, for example. Though it's relevant in a bigger context if you think about it, because a lot of U.S. entities may have foreign entities that they own, and this affects that also, but it doesn't have anything to do with our talk, okay? So if the foreign entity manufactures something in the U.S. and then sells it in the U.S., then it's not foreign sourced? Yes, no, it's not foreign sourced because we are saying simply self-created product, Let's look at it. Where is it manufactured? It's manufactured not in the U.S. So now it's foreign source product, okay? And the fact that it's foreign source product and we're dealing with a foreign corporation that's not located in, has no office in the U.S., okay, or no employees in the U.S., the IRS tax law does not consider this foreign source income as taxable in the U.S. So as long as our LLC or limited manufactured overseas, it is foreign sourced income, even though the uh, sale might happen in the States. Yeah, exactly. But it has to be self-created product. It has to be this, the, the, you know, and a lot of this product, you know, okay, so I think I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this first, because we just start out and say, well, all inventory is US source. But so, so that's why we're just differentiating. It probably doesn't fit a lot of the circumstances, but it I've had clients where it does fit. Okay, so then we would go to the next step would be what I call third-party inventory. That's tr your traditional thing where a company buys something wholesale and they sell it retail, okay? That would be any product that's not self-created or manufactured by the company. And so we see third-party products 
if we sell them while the product is in is overseas, so if we sell them while the product is in Australia, then it's still foreign sourced. But if we sell the product while it's already in the US in an Amazon distribution center, for example, then it is probably no longer foreign sourced, correct? That's what you're saying, correct? Are you saying if we had self-created product and we shipped it over to the Amazon fulfillment center, that could change its source? Is that what you're saying? No, but it's a good question. I assume it doesn't change its source. No, it does correct? not change its source. Exactly. So a self-created product that was manufactured overseas by a foreign entity will always be foreign source. So we are safe there. But now we're talking about third-party inventory. And this third-party inventory, if we sell it from Australia, then it's still foreign source. But if we sell it while it is in the Amazon distribution. Oh, I see your question. Okay, I'll, I'll get, I'll, okay, I'll uh, uh, narrow that down a little bit. Okay, so when we are dealing with third-party product, we, our next question is going to be, which we're going to answer, we're going to say, well, okay, we got third-party product. We know what that is. What's its source? If it's U.S. source, it's taxable in the U.S. If it's foreign source, it's not, okay? But it is all U.S. source because of the fact that we now look to where the customers are, okay? So if the customers are in the U.S. and it goes through an Amazon fulfillment center, and that's where the title passes also, then what we have is all U.S. source income. It's just that simple, okay? So if a company buys something wholesale, buys a big batch of something, and then goes ahead, limited goes ahead and sells it, ships it over to Amazon and sells it to U.S. customers, it's U.S. source income. And is it also U.S. sourced income when the product is in Australia and is shipped from Australia to U.S. customers? Is it that? Yes, still? if it was even, even, even if there was no Amazon fulfillment center and it was shipped directly to the U.S. customer, okay, it would still be U.S. source income because the IRS uh, primary tax law would say, where is the customer? That's the only question you would ask. And we would say, oh, the customer's in the U.S., U.S. source income. So third-party products sold into the U.S. under U.S. primary law disregarding the treaty would always be U.S. sourced. Yes. Now, so the next step would be, well, okay, first we had foreign source income, no, t no, no taxing in the U.S. Now we've got third-party product. We say, okay, taxing in the U.S. So if we just... We don't get to the treaty right now. We just look at primary tax law first because that's what we're doing, okay? So we just look at primary tax law and we say, okay, what profits did the corporation make over here on that inventory? Revenues, less expenses, profits. The corporation files a tax uh, foreign tax return in the U.S. and pays 21% tax on those profits. Can I ask you something? We have just spoken about foreign sourced and US sourced income. How does effectively connected income and US trade and business, how does that all fit together? Okay, this we can talk income? about that. Okay, so the first thing we assume, and then we'll talk about that a little bit later maybe, but if we, first thing we say, 
do you have a U.S. traded business? So far, so far, as we've been talking here today, we're assuming a U.S. trader business. Okay, uh, we can talk about that more. But let, for right this second, let's just assume U.S. trader business. The second thing we say is, do you have effectively connected income? And because if you do, then it's taxable in the U.S. So we say, well, what? If we assume we have a U.S. trader business, our only question left is, do we have effectively connected income? Okay, And that's how we started out to talk is, if we look at the tax law, we say no U.S. office, only foreign source income, which is the self-created product, Okay, that's not considered effectively connected. So even though we can say we have a U.S. trader business, with no effectively connected income, we have no taxing in the U.S. Can you elaborate on U.S. trade or business, so USTB? When do you have a USTB? I just want to elaborate on one more point. Third-party product, is, we say, oh, it's U.S. source income. Okay, it's, we, we, just, we define that, and that's what we said. And then under tax law, it says, well, if it's U.S. For source income, it's considered effectively connected. And so that what pulls it into the taxing. U.S. sourced income equals effectively connected income. It is. It's, it's all effectively connected just by definition. By getting it to be U.S. source, then it's effectively connected. So that means for third-party products, we have ECI, effectively connected income, because we have U.S. sourced income. So we need to look at whether we have a USTB or not. So US trade or business. Now, so far, what we've been going through is if you look at primary tax law, which would be definitely the, just as Australia has their own unique tax law uh, in the US here, if we look at internal revenue code sections and primary treasury regulations, okay? We can, so far what we've talked about, we can go through those in any situation and come to an exact conclusion so far in this talk, okay? Uh, the only thing which might be a little bit more difficult would be whether, Sometimes you get down into the situation, do you really have your, you know, economically manufactured product? Okay, that can be because that's, but it's still in a treasury regulation. So, so far, you know, this is very well-defined. Yeah, black and white. And, you know, if you go through the different steps, you can come to a very Com, you know, competent decision on yeah, this. Clear yes and no. But now we come into the gray. When we start talking about USTB, we come to the gray. Heidi, that's why I held off on this US trader business situation is because there is no exact answer here. There is only if, if somebody steps into the United States, okay, and they do some work, okay, personal service work on their computer or whatever, technically they have a U.S. trader business while they're here, okay? That's in the Internal Revenue Code section, but no place in the Treasury regulations or in the IR, in the code sections does it specifically define what is a U.S. trader business, and that is actually a big deal, and I think the best, easiest way to explain that would be if we, if we, because, you know, really, in the end, this is just we're, we're talking about this because clients want to know how to handle their situation. And so if you've got a seller that sold, we'll just say, you know, very small percentage of their product in the U.S., 
uh, you know, only had 10 or 15 sales a year, we could say they don't have a U.S. trader business, okay? Now, that would actually be a big deal because even if they had third-party product, they would have effectively connected income because it's U.S. source, but without a U.S. trader business, they're still not taxed. So sometimes you'll see some tax people and they'll say, well, you don't really have a U.S. trader business, so you don't have a concern. But the, the situation, so we can't really say for sure when you have a U.S. trader business, but we can say this, okay, if a company is operating like a limited operating in the U.S., it has a, an LLC, a legal entity, which it owns, it does banking in the U.S., in today's world, it's probably going to have to collect a bunch of sales taxes, okay? If the IRS were to, Internal Revenue Service was to question this business, and they say, well, we don't really have a U.S. trader business, you might not really have much of a defense, okay? It's the problem you get into. And so if you've got a company that's doing transactions over here, I think the most prudent thing is just to assume you don't have a U.S. trader business because if your whole, I mean, that you do have a U.S. trader business, because if you assume that you don't have one and you haven't filed anything, okay, and you know you haven't taken care of this over the years, everything is hanging on U.S. trader business and you have no exact tax law to support you. You've got huge number of court cases that have gone one way, and those are primary tax law, but the problem is they've gone different directions in, in different cases, okay? So I think the easiest thing to say I mean, I think the assumption is to say that you do have a U.S. trader business if you're operating on a continual, you know, basis in the U.S. Good. And so that, or, or not so good, because it means that if you have a U.S. TB, a U.S. trader business, and then if you sell third-party products in the U.S., you have U.S. sourced income, and hence you have effectively connected income, and hence your income in the U.S., is taxable in the US. Yes. Under US primary law. We now are hoping that the treaty somehow digs us out of this hole. But right now, under US primary law, we do have taxable income in the US if we are selling third-party products. Exactly what you said, Heidi. And if we just carry that example a little bit further, let's say the company was operating out of a country with no treaty with the US. Okay, now we're done. There's no treaty. You know, so, you know, if the country was operating, let's just say out of Hong Kong or someplace or Belize or someplace where there's no treaty, and then we're just done because there is no treaty to apply because the way the treaties work, as we know, is what you do is you first apply the primary tax law in the U.S., and then you say, is there a treaty position we could take that possibly could mitigate or change our primary tax law results, okay? And if there is, we can use that treaty on the tax return. So what the per, if, if we assume that a, a, tr a treaty position applies, the company, the limited, still files a tax return in the U.S., but what they do is they go ahead and take a treaty position on that return, okay? It, it, then there's no taxing in the U.S., and they want to do that because there is a $10,000 penalty for not actually taking the treaty position on the return, $10,000 per year. So somebody can't just say, well, um, 
you know, a limited can't just say, well, I have a treaty, so I don't have to do anything. They actually need to file the return and take the treaty position and, uh, on the return. So the Australian company, assuming the treaty, which we will discuss in a minute, assuming the treaty digs them out of this hole, then the Australian company still has to file an 1120F and an 8833 to claim the treaty position, and the LLC has to file an 5472 and then attach it to a pro forma 1120 as well, correct? That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. So if you want, we can move to the treaty then. Yes, exactly, because our position at the moment is that our Australian Propriety Limited, which is selling third-party products into the US through Amazon, does have effectively connected income and hence does have to pay US tax. And so now we are hoping that the treaty will save us. Yes, that's the thing. Okay, so I think the easiest way to start out with this is just to, to first pretend that there is no LLC, okay? and just see how that would work, okay? Uh, let's just say, you know, now, as you told me, Amazon now requires that you have a U.S. entity, the, the, the single member LLC. I mean, they don't require that, but they require a U.S. entity. So, but let's just pretend we're living in the world where the, uh, the limited from Australia just sells directly, uses the Amazon Fulfillment Center and has no LLC at all. Okay, so there we have exactly no problem at all because we can look at the U.S.-Australian tax treaty and we can say, well, Limited is a resident, a tax resident in Australia. Limited has no permanent establishment in the U.S., okay? It does have agency and the treaty talks about that, but Amazon would be considered an independent agent because it operates for <laughs> about as many people as you possibly, companies you possibly could. Okay. So, you know, sometimes a dependent agent only works for one company. Obviously they don't do that. So there's no issue. I would have no issue at all in filling out that treaty form between the U.S. and Australia and going ahead and put that on the return, put those articles in there between the treaty, and there's absolutely no taxing in the U.S. It's just taxed in Australia. You know, Australian would, the company and its the chartered accountants would take care of the treaty issue. You know, they would take care of their taxes over there, and there would be no U.S. taxes at all. Looking at the treaty, the Australian Propriety Limited only has to pay tax in the US if they have a permanent establishment. If they don't have a permanent establishment, then even though under primary law they have a USTB, even under primary law they have ECI, because they have no PE, they are not taxable in the US, correct? That is exactly correct. There's absolutely no question about that at all. And it would be very straightforward. Yes. And then can I just go back to the primary tax law again? Because we discussed it there in the light of an LLC and a propriety limited. But it doesn't actually matter. What we discussed before about having a USTB and then having effectively connected income and having US sourced income, all of that It doesn't matter whether you trade directly in the US through an Australian Propriety Limited or whether you trade through an LLC. Everything we discussed with respect to third-party inventory, etc., it applies in both cases, no matter whether you trade through an Australian entity or whether you trade through a disregarded entity in the form of an LLC, correct? 
For legal purposes, yes, the LLC is its own entity. But for tax, IRS tax purposes, it's considered totally disregarded. So the IRS just simply looks at the LLC and says, who owns it? And those tax results go on the entity that owns it. So it's not even looked at. It's just passed right through. Good. So for U.S. primary tax, it doesn't matter whether we trade directly through the Propriety Limited or whether we trade through the LLC. Everything we discussed applies to both scenarios. But for the treaty, it very much does matter whether we trade directly through the Propriety Limited or through the LLC. If we trade directly through the Propriety Limited, then it's very straightforward because we have an Australian entity doing business in the U.S. and then it all hinges on the permanent establishment. But if we now have the LLC and a U.S. entity, then it becomes a lot more muddy, I understand, because the treaty is not so clear anymore. Yeah, no, it does. It really muddies up the situation, okay? It does. And this is not uncommon for different countries, okay? Canada, you have the same problem. You have the same problem in the U.K. These treaties are all written a little bit differently, okay? If you look at the language of the U.S.-Australian treaty, and you look at the protocol that came out, the later protocol that updated Article 7 on business profits, they do talk about a fis fiscally transparent entities. I should say this, I should back up just a little bit, okay? Because I should really say, well, what really is our issue here, okay? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, the thing is, in order to use a treaty, you need to be a tax resident of that for that treaty. So we know for sure when we just made up this imaginary scenario where the limited, you know, did its own business on its own in the U.S. Well, we certainly know the limited is a U.S. an Australian tax resident. You know, it's formed over there. It's ran from there. So it has to be an Australian tax resident. So then it has rights to that treaty. The question we have here now is, well, we've got a limited, it owns the, it owns the LLC, that's a U.S. entity. How does the treaty ap apply to that? Well, the treaty does talk about fiscally transparent entities, and it talks about partnerships, okay? So in order to use the treaty, what we need to have happen is does Australia recognize uh, that income flowing over to limited, okay? Now, from my understanding is that it's a partnership, okay? If an LLC has multiple members, it's considered a partnership. And so if it had, let's say it had two members, then it's a partnership. And so if partnership income comes over to limited and it flows on limited's on their corporate tax return from the partnership that flows on there, then we could say, well, we have limited as the tax resident, okay, because it took the income in. The, the situation that I can say that I'm not, uh, I'm not really sure of here is whether or not this single member LLC would be considered like a partnership where the income comes in, okay, and would, can we recognize limited as the tax resident, or is it the LLC that's got the income? How's it going to be taxed over in Australia? Can I just ask you something? The Australian Propriety Limited, is there any scenario where the Australian Propriety Limited could become a U.S. tax resident under U.S. primary law? Here's when it would become a U.S. tax resident. 
if it had an office over in the U.S. or a branch in the U.S., its branch would be a tax resident. It wouldn't be a tax resident. Its branch would be over there. Of course, then it would be taxed on that income, and the treaty wouldn't help you there because so you're taxing a resident over in the U.S. I should say, if the LLC in the U.S. had limited as one of its members, and maybe it had a sister corporation, sister limited in the Australia as another member, or maybe an, uh, another individual of tax resident in Australia as a member, that it's very likely that they could use the treaty because the income would pass through to limited from the part LLC partnership, and it would pass through to the other party that owns the other part of the interest. Good. So you're saying if you make the LLC a partnership, the, if, for example, 50% held by Propriety Limited and 50% held directly by the ultimate shareholder, then because the Article 7 of the treaty does refer to disregarded partnerships, then the treaty could apply to the LLC. But if it's a sole member, then we don't have a partnership and hence the treaty doesn't cover sole members. It only covers partnerships. That's the way I read it. Okay. From my reading of it, that's what I would say because it's income is passing through. It's passing through to the members, to the partners, which in this case is limited and somebody else. Okay. So it's passing through with a single member LLC. I don't think it's passing through. It's being stopped. It's its own opaque entity. Good. Okay. So you could also hold the LLC by two Australian Propriety Limiteds, for example. And then you would still have the partnership, which Article 7 of the uh, US-Australian Treaty does cover. Yeah, it does. And so even though the treaty itself, when you read the protocol and you need the explanations for this new provision, it's talking a little bit more about the fact of a different issue. It still talks about the fact of fiscally transparent entities, okay? And it talks about partnerships. So my understanding would be that if this was a partnership, I mean, if it had more than one member, it would be, you know, a partnership for tax purposes and it would pass through onto the entity, okay? To limit it. So that means if, assuming the LLC is a partnership, The um, position under U.S. primary law doesn't change whether it's a sole member or whether it's a partnership. It doesn't matter. It's, instead of one propriety limited, you have two propriety limited that basically have effectively connected income and have a USTB. So that position doesn't change. But then under the treaty, it very much changes because with a sole member, it's not clear whether you're covered by the treaty. But if you have a partnership, then you're definitely covered by the treaty. Yeah, and I would say this. Yeah, I agree with exactly what you just, I mean, your summary is exactly the way I'm thinking. I mean, I would be glad to be proven wrong, okay? You, you know what I'm saying, Heidi? If somebody could show me how the treaty would apply to a single-member LLC, I would be glad, you know, to see that. But from looking at it, it doesn't seem to apply to a single-member LLC. But so now we assume that we have a partnership and we assume the treaty applies. And if the treaty applies, then we only have tax income, then we only have assessable income in the US 
if we have a permanent establishment. And because we don't have a permanent establishment, we don't have a physical office, we don't have dependent agents on the, uh, on the ground. Hence, I think we are reasonably safe to say that there is no permanent establishment. Hence, then all income is taxed in Australia. Correct? That's exactly correct. Because there's partnerships, you know, here we technically have a, we have a legal LLC, but it's taxed as a partnership. So the treaty recognizes these fiscally transparent entities. And for sure, it just passes through and the treaty would allow uh, partnership income to pass through and it would look to the resident, tax resident of Australia, which is limited in somebody else. Okay. And so there again, now we can use the treaty. Coming back to this issue about single member LLCs, have you heard... Um, rumblings from the IIS that they are going to attack this? Because at the moment, there are thousands, if not in the millions of businesses overseas who claim the treaty position for single member LLCs. Have you heard rumblings from the IIS that they are going to attack this? I haven't heard that specifically, but I think the way I could answer this would be this. Right now in Congress, and I presume this will get Past, okay, even though we're not hearing much about it in the press, but I just read something today they want to get this done by the end of December, is they're going to be passing a new tax law, okay? And that doesn't have anything to do with this situation. Where it has something to do indirectly because one of the problems the IRS has had is underfunding, serious underfunding. And so they're planning on, you know, giving an additional $80 billion over 10 years to the IRS. So one of the areas that they certainly could look at would be these foreign entity areas, okay? And, they, and if they do that, they'll start looking more closely at these treaties for sure. I mean, in a way, they are starting because they are attacking the uh, 5472. They are attacking the non-filing of 5472. And that's basically the first step because with the um, 5472, the IAS learns who the members are. And hence, only with the 5472 can they tell whether it's a single member or a multiple member LLC. So that's basically the first step. And then once they have that information, then the question is, do they attack the sole member LLCs? given that the treaty is silent on this, or do they let it pass? Well, yeah, they could sell, you know, what they could do is, they. Here's, here's a simple thing they could do, would be when somebody takes a treaty position on a return, you could have agents that can more thoroughly look at these treaties to see if they apply or not. You know, I mean, all you have to do is look at the treaty, and obviously they have the resource, they have, when they have the resources to do all this, They can start looking at these treaties and see, well, does the treaty really apply here for this LLC? Like, let's say you took a treaty position on this single member LLC and we and there and really we can't find a way for it to apply. You know, then they would say, well, that treaty doesn't apply. And then we have a big problem because the LLC is seen as an Australian resident And the foreign hybrid rules don't apply to Australian residents. Hence, the LLC is an entity in its own name. And if the propriety limited then pays tax in the US for income the LLC is taxable on in Australia, then you have the problem regarding foreign income tax offsets that the person who has the income is not the same as, as the one who paid the tax. But that's kind of a, a topic in, 
you know. Yeah, it can, you can, well, you can, you can basically end up with double taxation where you owe tax in the U.S. and you owe in Australia and you don't get any foreign tax credit. It's, it's kind of a mismatch of entities. It's a miss, I call it a mismatch of entities where they don't line up properly, you know. And then the only, t- the only thing that causes this to happen is this single member LLC potentially. Yes, because under section 770-130, you can apply a FITO if you have a mismatch because of a partnership. So a partner can claim a FITO for tax that is paid by the partnership. And so if the LLC is a partnership, then this 70-70-130 will give you the FITO even though you have a mismatch between entities. So the partnership would also help you in Australia with with respect to claiming the FITO, not just under the treaty, but also in Australia. Yeah, so that would then work. It just may not work with the single member LLC is only issue. I think that's where you'd have the only issue. Yes, exactly. The, the, when I look at this and I write on this for international clients a lot on these different countries and different situations, what I like to do is that When you're doing this, you want to get the tax advisor involved in the other country that you're dealing with for your client, you know, and so that you it's just like you and I are talking today. So what you don't want to do is what I don't like to do or see people do is just form the entity in the U.S., not talk to their advisor, like in this case, so tax advisor over in Australia, and then that person is just hit with all these things at once. Or the other thing I don't like to do is, I, well, I don't do, is just write about the U.S. tax law. That's the only thing I can legally address, okay? But I usually will put, or when I'm talking to international clients or writing a memo for them, I'll always you know, look up something, look up at it in generally and kind of throw a red flag that you need to check out these issues with your advisor over in the home country to make sure this situation is going to work for you. Okay. So when you got international tax law and you're dealing with two different countries, I think the thing is it can work. Client wants to get both of his advisors in each country involved in this on the same page so you don't have any surprises, you know, two or three years down the road. Because sure, it's easy to set up a U.S. entity, say we're going to file these tax returns, do this over here, and then just you can't ignore what's happening over in the home country, you know, where the person that's operating from. And these treaty things are really tough sometimes to determine, you know, because that can really throw, the problem is, as you can realize, Heidi, it can really throw the situation off down the road two or three years if this isn't addressed. Welcome back. So a single member LLC works fine as long as you have no US trade or business and no effectively connected income in the US. And then you don't even need the DTA to help you out. Where it gets tricky is when the LLC does have a USTB, a US trade or business and effectively connected income in the US. But what constitutes a USTB is not clear at all. And so it is very difficult to tell whether you have a USTB. And so a common approach is to just assume that there is no US trade or business. If what makes a US trade or business is unclear, well, then let's just assume that there is no USTB. 
And so far, this seems to work fine. So far, the IIS hasn't gone after foreign e-commerce businesses that have substantial U.S. sourced income from selling into the U.S. through 3PL services. But the IIS has started targeting businesses that don't file a 5472. And maybe that is the start of honing in on all this. We will look at this in a lot more detail in the following US updates and it will get very confusing and nerdy at times. So if you rather just have a high level summary, then please just go for the LLC summary in a few weeks. In the next episode on Monday, episode 334, Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide will talk about the tax issues around the subdivision of land. If you have clients in property development, please make sure you don't miss this one because it is really helpful. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.